it sounds like if astronomers could live wherever they want, that the center of the galaxy would want be one of those places to be, you know. Oh no, 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 no. no. I, no. Okay. I disabuse you of that. I, I want to, you know, cancel your your uh, realtor dot com appointment to relocate. Okay. <laughs> Good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Philip. But good morning, Brian. Hello, Philip. Hello, Matt. Great to be with you guys. Good morning, Brian. So uh, it's afternoon because for us New Yorkers, but Brian, you are in San Diego. That is correct. I'm in San Diego, but I used to. Uh, was uh, my origin story begins in New York? So when I feel like by a radioactive spider, <laughs> radioactive meteorite. Yes. <laughs> like, like all superheroes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so, yes. Hello, listeners. Welcome to What the If. Uh, this is a show where we ask one question, what if, but we throw in a the. And Brian, we can introduce you to this if you haven't heard it before. Well, I, Matt, why do we throw, why do we say what the if instead of what if? Uh, it, it has to capture our... Uh, outrage and horror at the, the scenario we've come up with. So the, the emotional content behind the what. Yes. As if we didn't come up with it ourselves. As we spit it out. Yes, that's and right. We're say, shocked. By if? Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by asking uh, what if or what the if, um, uh, one thing, uh, Brian, a little bit uh, before the show, we were talking about David Brandon, um, all science fiction stories. Uh, begin with a big what if. And so we ask one, one question, we allow ourselves one gimme, so to speak, and then the rest is we try to limit that to real science. And from that, somehow we learn things. Still not sure. We laugh a lot, <laughs> but we do learn a lot <clears throat> in, a, in an unstructured, uh, wacky way, holistic, right. perhaps. Um, uh, so our special guest here, let me introduce you formally, Brian Keating. Um, just how do you of, of all the many many achievements you have and things you do how would you describe yourself uh how do you self-identify upright citizen i would say oh <laughs> good I, answer i was a member and of that, the upright citizens uh, brigade improv that's group. right yeah maybe downright citizen <laughs> uh I, I guess i think of myself as a professor uh, or an astronomer although i always thought that would be like being a wizard you know nobody would pay you to do it um, but, but nowadays I get paid, albeit not that much. Don't tell <laughs> Jerry Brown or Gavin Newsom, his likely successor, uh, that I'll do it for free. But, um, yeah, I am an astronomer, professor of uh, physics and astronomy at UC San Diego. Super cool. And, and, um, your main project right now is, is that bicep two? Well, Bicep 2 was a main project in the sense of uh, writing about it for about two years. And, um, but I've, I've moved on from that uh, project to another project of, of even surpassing uh, kind of ambition, which is called the Simons Observatory. And that is, instead of being located in the very bottom of the world, the ultimate uh, low-rent district, the South Pole, <laughs> it is... Uh, 
It is uh, located in the high Atacama Desert of uh, northern Chile. So similar in spirit, it's a telescope that will hopefully peer back to the beginning of time and see perhaps some of the fingerprints of the Big Bang and, uh, and its aftermath. Yeah, that's that, is, that is so cool. And, and just without going into great detail, but, but I, uh, I heard you talking about it and saying that the fascinating thing is that uh, Jim Simons, who, um, who's its name for and who is funding that, I suppose, um, you're using a mathematical uh, theorem. Is that it? How do you describe it? That he... There is, yeah, there is a kind of acute connection between one of the findings that Jim Simons had as a mathematician called the Chern-Simons invariant, which is sort of a geometric effect related to the property of very arcane, esoteric things called the topological surfaces. And um, way back when in the 70s, Jim Simons invented this sort of um, interesting mathematical curiosity, and that's all it really was, until the 80s and 90s when physicists realized it had some applicability to string theory and perhaps even to cosmology. So that is one thing I am studying now, is the, uh, the potential impact of these strange forbidden um, mathematical functions that don't really appear in the real world of Earth, but they may appear in an intriguing way on the cosmic microwave background radiation that we study. Wow. That's amazing. Plus your, your mathematics. <laughs> yes. I, I had the privilege of meeting, uh, I've met Jim Simons. He runs a uh, organization called Math, uh, uh, among many things he does, but uh, one of them is uh, Math for America. Where That's right. And he tells a great story, um, just speaking of, one, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I think actually behind what Matt and I do with this show, and, and I think a lot of what you do, too, uh, when you're not doing the science itself is, is uh, scientific outreach or, you know, hoping, helping people understand and sharing the enthusiasm and, and trying to translate things. And uh, he tells the story of uh, he went to his children's first, went to visit for the first grade teachers his, his children were at and in a very well-to-do private school. And uh, he asked, he met the English teacher and she talked all about how they, you know, what they do reading wise, and learning to write. Then he went to the math teacher, first grade math teacher and said, um, you know, so how do you teach mathematics? You know, and, and she just giggled and said, oh, uh, you know, we have a book and, and I don't really understand it very much. Ha ha ha. And, and he says, well, what if the students have a real question? You know, oh, well, that's what Mrs. Wilson down the hall is for. And he just thought. Can you imagine if this was the reading teacher who said that? Oh, I don't really know how to read, you know. So yeah, um, right. this organization is yeah. amazing. He gets together the best mathematicians in the city, and then yeah. uh, uses and in the country. It's actually Math for America. So we have a oh, chapter right. here in San Diego, even. So they pay um, college grads to not go work for him and his Renaissance Technologies hedge fund, right. <laughs> and he instead pays them to teach in public schools and get their master's degree. So yeah, I was I've involved with them on the board in the San Diego area. And they also run the Museum of Mathematics. I right. cannot fail to give a shout out to uh, yeah. other MoMath and MoMA, MoMath in, uh, in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, and that's a cool place. Yeah. Professor Stanley is, yes. Yeah, yeah. At, uh, and that's right at uh, Madison Square Park, Broadway. That's right. In the 23rd thereabouts. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going much farther than 
Madison Square, Square Park today, <laughs> even farther than San Diego. And we asked ourselves, what the if we could go, we could, what the if we could live in the, in the center of the Milky Way galaxy? We'll go that far. There are other yeah. galaxies we could go to, but let's stick close to home. Yeah, stay close to home. And uh, Brian, this was, this was your suggestion, one of, one of a number of wonderful what the ifs. So one parameter might be, well, what are we on? Uh, and I'm going to say, what if we just, our, what if our solar system were in the center of the galaxy? Now, I'm going to guess we can't be in the exact center. So we're near the center, our solar system. What do we uh, experience? There may be a what's called a supermassive black hole at the very center of the galaxy that would make life very uncomfortable for us uh, were we to be at the exact center, as you say. So in this scenario, we'd have to be located a little bit offset from the center, uh, but not by too much. Because mm. if you look at the stars, instead of planets orbiting around the sun, say, mm. at the center of our galaxy, there are you know, dozens of stars that orbit around an unseeable mass that is presumably a black hole of enormous mass. And you can measure the mass from looking at the orbits of the stars around it. And there's about 10 or 12 stars that come very close to the galactic center and allow you to triangulate the exact position of the galactic center. But this was completely unknown until, I would say, about maybe 15 years ago when a new technique called adaptive optics, mm -hmm. which really owes itself to a brilliant astronomer named Claire Max here in the University of California system, was working on a way to, um, to remove the twinkling of the little stars that you sing to your children uh, <laughs> in the nursery rhyme. So twinkle, twinkle, little star. That wouldn't happen if you were in, in space. It only happens because of a property of our atmosphere where the atmosphere is made up of little tiny cells of gas and motion and water vapor and mixtures of different gas and molecules. And they have different densities and pressures and they cause the effect of tiny little lenses that bend and distort and cause light to scintillate or twinkle. And uh, Professor Claire Max discovered that she could freeze the atmosphere, so to speak, if she could have a mirror which would exactly negate, kind of like noise-canceling headphones. Right. That would exactly cancel out the properties of the bending of light due to the atmosphere. Right. So she kind of made like an anti-atmospheric corrector. Yeah. And it was so cool and so valuable that the United States military swooped in and said, you cannot release this information. You cannot use this for astronomy. We have to use it for military purposes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. And in fact, it was uh, the, the actual, she, wasn't, she was allowed to hold some of the patent rights, I believe she told me, but most of them were uh, subsumed by the United States government. And she, um, and she had to keep the technology secret for a long time because just as it could freeze the atmosphere, say, looking uh, from Earth to the heavens, oh, it could also work the opposite way where you could look down from a spy satellite or a drone or an airplane right. and correct the distortions that could cause a missile or a bullet or something to miss by its target by a significant amount. So she could correct that. Yeah. And actually nowadays one of my friends who's got a top secret clearance, you know, tells me that they have they actually have the, the military uses sniper rifles on Earth that correct for these effects. No, which is just amazing. Oh, 
So watch out. Yikes. Dr. Andrea Gez, she's a colleague at University of California, also Los Angeles. And she, uh, she works to image the galactic center with very high time resolution. She makes movies of it. So they're quite fascinating because some of the stars have orbits. Not Our sun takes about 200 million years to make one complete lap around the Milky Way, right. even, even traveling at you know hundreds of kilometers per second. These stars make a lap around the Milky Way. It reminds me of you know when I went to the South Pole, I've been there a couple times for my work on BICEP too. And you can run around the entire world you know, in under you know, 10 <laughs> seconds. But, uh, but of course, you know, that's about as fast as I'll ever be able to do it. But these stars make a lap around the galaxy every 11 years in some cases. So, you know, literally uh, millions of times faster than the Earth can do and the sun does. So we're on Earth. We're our solar system. You know, in, in this scenario, we, we all evolved and our solar system as we know it now evolved, but it happened to do it uh, near the center of the galaxy. What do we see these stars moving in the sky? Do we see a black hole in the sky? What are we looking at? So depending on how far away we would be, um, let's say we were several parsecs away from the center. So several thousand times the diameter of the solar system, just to make sure that we don't get, you know, spaghettified and crushed by this <laughs> enormous massive. <laughs> so the black hole from a few parsecs away, even though it's millions of times more massive than our sun, would not actually be, uh, presumably would not actually be visible as a, as a black spot. Now, ah. that would not mean that these uh, astronomers could not, you know, reveal the presence of the black hole uh, because they would see the orbit of, you know, literally, you know, hundreds more stars than we can see located, you know, tens of kiloparsecs away from the center. And yet we're able to see through it. Um, and they would have another luxury that we don't have, which is that we're basically not only looking, you know, the, the galaxy is not just a bunch of light bulbs kind of floating around in space. It's mm. mostly composed of dark matter, which mm. we can't really see. And the dark matter is more or less uniform, at least on the scales that we'd be talking about. It, it does get denser towards the center of the galaxy. Mm. But for all intents and purposes, we would be, um, uh, you know, we, we could approximate it as a uniform distribution. On the other hand, there's tons and tons, literally, you know, per cubic meter of dust or a cubic kilometer of dust in the Milky Way galaxy. And, and actually, a lot of the matter in the, in the galaxy is this, is this stardust, this pollution that was created from the explosive death knells of previous stars called you know, supernovae. Right. Now, an astronomer would call the dust pollution. And I, you, you right. have a particular, <laughs> a particular relationship with dust. Yes, yes. Dust is my, uh, is my uh, Dr. Moriarty. Dust is my, you know. <laughs> Your nemesis? My nemesis, yes. <laughs> dust is, uh, is literally the dark cloud that, uh, that eclipsed the Nobel Prize for me and my, my colleagues. But, but uh, we, won't, we won't have to talk about that right now. I just want to say that the dust in our galaxy occludes the observation of these stars they orbit around. So we have to play a lot of tricks and filter and use different wavelengths of light to glimpse how these stars behave. But the amount of dust exponentially attenuates the light that gets to our eyes. So mm. the closer you are, exponentially greater would be the signals that you would see from the stars. So it'd be a lot easier to detect the, the, um, the apparent position and measure the properties of the black hole. Right. And the stars. I, I, it sounds like if astronomers could live wherever they want, that the center of the galaxy would want, be one of those places to be 
you know. Oh, no. No, no. No. I will, no. Okay. I disabuse you of that. I, I want to, you know, cancel your, your uh, realtor.com appointment to relocate. Okay. <laughs> oh, bad glare, <laughs> is, I guess. That is a location, location, location. You do not want to go. Well, it could be, it could be interesting. I mean, imagine, you know, uh, imagine that, 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 that planet that I think Luke Skywalker is from where, you know, there's multiple stars in the sky, yeah. um, multiple suns. So, but imagine like a blaze of, you know, thousands or millions of, of suns. Um, if you could live, if, if they were old enough and they were cool enough and they weren't irradiating you with, with violent, you know, cosmic rays and, and other sorts of, of, of high energy particles and solar flares, et cetera. And, and assuming you could live in such a region and there was a way to, to, you know, protect you from the damage, damaging illumination, or, or perhaps you were just far enough away from the other stars, um, you would be bedazzled by the, you know, the light coming from the, combined glow of these stars so imagine the milky way but but all around you surrounding you in a complete um uh in a a completely enclosing uh milky way a spherical milky way instead of just a um instead of just a a spilled you know almost linear band of stars yeah well that's pretty amazing we would see the whole sky well the milky way kind of glowing in all directions but but it would be covering up our entire sky more or less well, that's so, interesting. Right. So, so at what point would we be able to realize that the place we were was weird? That is, that there was less dense areas outside us? About 150 years after Galileo and Copernicus, you know, removed us from the center of the solar system. So cosmologist egos were pretty bruised. And they said, well, we're not the center of the solar system, but we are the center of the, of the galaxy. <laughs> that we can know for sure. And how they know that? Well, they looked in all directions and they saw that starlight was diminishing. Every di- direction that we looked, starlight was getting reduced and it was reduced in such a way that no matter which direction we looked, it was decreasing the same exponential attenuation. And this made them think, well, we're the center. Dust absorbs and, and everywhere that we looked, dust was absor- absorbing the light that we could see from a distant star. Uh, the great uh, astronomer William Herschel he made a map of the galaxy about 80 years after Galileo's discoveries of the moons of Jupiter and the phases of Venus. And he put the Earth almost at the center of the galaxy because that's the way it appears. Yeah. And it was only after being able to see things that were um, incorrect for the absorption due to dust that we realized we are not the center of the galaxy. So in this way, and we saw things outside of our galaxy called globular clusters, these are tiny miniature spherical globs of stars with about a million stars or less each and balls. And the, these balls of stars orbit around the center of the Milky Way. So astronomers only about 80, 90 years ago, this is called the Great Debate, although in my book I call it just like the third or fourth Great Debate because <laughs> I believe that, that there's been a lot of these throughout history. But anyway, they saw triangulated the positions of these, of these globular clusters and they found they were making a halo around what was the actual center of our galaxy, which is located about you know 10 or 20 kiloparsecs away from the Earth. And so we're just an, uh, out on the spiral arm of a galaxy. But if we were at the center of the galaxy, we could measure these globular clusters, assuming we could see use infrared telescopes. We could see these, in, these stars. Then you'd know you're the center of the galaxy. Cool. So they would, those people would have a really strong ego. Yes, yeah, they would, right? And totally justified, right? 
Exactly. Right. Yeah. They would be the center of the universe. And actually, they wouldn't probably know about other galaxies. That's what's so interesting. Uh, because the background light from the stars is so bright, you wouldn't see the other galaxies? Yeah, that's why I said it would be a bad place for astronomers. So you'd, you'd learn a lot about stars living at the center of the galaxy. But unfortunately, you wouldn't be very good at cosmology. We wouldn't, we'd, we'd barely be aware of the fact that we're at the center of the galaxy. And we certainly wouldn't be able to see any galaxies beyond us. And worst of all, for cosmologists like me, the amount of illumination we'd see from all these other sources, including the dust, would be so powerful. It would overwhelm the precious cosmic microwave background. Uh So we would would not know. We would be completely ignorant of the Big Bang. Wow. Ignorant ignorant of anything beyond the Milky Way even, let alone... Beyond even our central part of the Milky Way. Uh We probably wouldn't be able to see beyond a few parsecs. Dust absorbs very, very strongly in the optical. And and so we, we would need very powerful infrared telescopes. And so pretty, pretty sparse chances, I would say. Yeah. And I'm still not uh, clear. Is the sky solid light or is it, uh, do we see the globes of suns with dust I in between? That, I, I mean, I think, I think it would be more or less solid light because mm. almost everywhere you would look, you'd see a star. It would be like we're, you know, on the planet Mercury and we're so close to the sun that we're, you know, one side of our planet's basically always roasting. The other side's always freezing, except on that side, there's also a star. And on the other <laughs> side, there's also a star. <laughs> so we have to, if we were a little bit away from it, you could imagine that the Milky Way would be extremely inhomogeneous. So there might be, say, we went, we, our star might always face in some sense towards the galactic center because of the same forces that make Mercury always face toward. So you can imagine that maybe there'd be a clever astronomer that would figure out that Every now and then, you could go to a place where the um, where you could look uh, directly uh, opposite to where the galactic center is, <sighs> and in that case, you might be able to glimpse a little bit farther into the you know perhaps galactic cent- uh, away from the galactic center in our own galaxy. But you wouldn't be able to look very far. So it would probably uh-huh. be like a boiling hot, glowing Milky Way on one side. That's the temperature of the sun. And the other side, it would be, you know, less bright or maybe inhomogeneous, you know, kind of Milky Way, but it would still be pretty darn bright. Wow. Wow. So the black hole is actually like the least interesting thing in the sky. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, black holes, they really only have, you know, three major properties, at least classically, according to uh, general relativity. They have a mass, they have a charge potentially, and they have spin. But other than that, they're kind of like commodities, like you know, corn or something like that. <laughs> uh, Pork bellies, or people. You know, people are. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, people are infinitely precious. Sex but, meat. Um, but yeah, they're like they're like corn or you know sorghum or whatever. <laughs> they're they're you know you've seen one, you've seen them all basically. <sighs> so they're not that interesting as individual units, but their statistics, their properties, their effect on gravity, etc., makes them very interesting. Cool. So if there's a space program on this. Uh, Earth at the center of the galaxy, solar system at the center, near the center of the galaxy, and they take off. Is the black hole? Is the black hole, even if they hadn't seen it, instantly uh, a factor in their path? Like, is is the gravity so huge, or are all the stars sort of canceling out? I don't know. Do we yeah, know what gravity is like in this? Region. I would say that it would not be that uh, that effective in the same way that, you know, as I said, we could replace the sun with a black hole 
it's not like a vacuum cleaner that's just going to suck up everything magically. I mean, we see stars that are orbiting near the black hole. And so you could imagine a couple things. One is that a clever uh, space program near the galactic center could use the black hole's gravity in, in the same way that we use planet Jupiter or, or another planet's gravity to get a gravitational slingshot effect um, and boost things out. It's a little bit harder in the case of a black hole, because it might be multiple black holes, I should say, Ooh. that are in orbit around the black hole. And there's and the fact that the that uh. the chaos of the gravitational dynamics of hundreds of stars whirling like bees around the galactic center, I would imagine that that a clever astronaut program, you know, could make use of that to then slingshot a probe out of the galactic center neighborhood. Wow. Nice. You'd have to be like Han Solo though. You'd have to be like amazingly good oh, yeah. at navigating all of this. And then he, this, is, this is kind of fascinating because then he could have gotten such a huge boost, right? They might very quickly see the whole galaxy. If they took off toward, perpendicular to the plane of the galaxy, they would be able to look down and see the whole thing. Right. So yeah, depending on which direction they shoot out, that's exactly right. Because yeah. the Milky Way is not a spherical blob of stars. It's a it's a flat pancake kind of whirlpool shape that's swirling in, in motion, and and uh, there are different parts of it that have uh, fewer stars than other parts of it. So you're absolutely right. So and the other benefit you get from this kind of a program that you wouldn't get from a NASA space program is as you approach the black hole, the time would slow down for you. Right. And so you could actually you know get very you know very you know, long term time travel if the closer you got to the actual black hole itself, or even to its gravitational sphere of influence, you could drastically slow down time for the occupants of the space station. And then, you know, and then still they would recover somewhat as the black, as they moved away from the black hole and the black hole moved away from them. Uh, they would, they would then age again, but uh, at a more standard comparable rate, but you could sort of put them in suspended animation the closer you got to the black hole's uh, uh, Schwarzschild radius or event horizon. Wow. So center of the galaxy, bad for astronomers, good for astronauts? <laughs> yes, it's kind, of the, it's, it's kind of the opposite of NASA. All right. <laughs> NASA's not so great for us astronomers nowadays, but it seems to be okay for astronauts. Nice. And I don't have any anger towards them. <laughs> no bitterness. Not at all. Um, no bitterness. Well, thank you. That was an, that. This is an amazing uh, place. It's funny with all our what the ifs. We often just get something going, and then it's like, man, I want to live. I want to go there and follow this even further, and yeah. further and further. So, to sum up, there there may be not just one black hole, but you think there might be multiple black holes swirling. There could be. Yeah, yeah, there could be. And and what's happening now, and that your listeners might enjoy, is uh, this group at UCLA led by Professor Gez, she's actually plotting not only the positions of stars, but huge clouds of gas and dust that are very similar to the way our solar system must have looked you know, five billion years ago. And she's plotting them as they get swallowed up by the black hole. And so she can forecast the date, you know, the, the end times for these planetary, protoplanetary blobules oh. that, now mind you, these, these, you know, have long since been consumed by the black hole. Uh, but, you know, something like 20 or 30,000 years ago or, or 50,000 years ago. Oh, wow. uh, but nevertheless, uh, they're making predictions on when these things will make 
very close approach to the to the galactic center's black hole. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Actually, Andre Gez is in um in this Einstein documentary I did that Matt yeah. is in as well. That's right. And mm-hmm. um, there's also there's a great uh, it was made quite a while ago, but there's a, a great Nova episode about. Um, her work and her team's work yeah. looking at the center of the galaxy. Yeah. yeah you see her in planetaria around the world too. She's mm, yeah. Her group is really amazing. So love, yeah. love all your local scientists yep. and long distance scientists. Um, nice. Love the fact that uh, this is a new, th- every, every time we do one of these, I learn to appreciate something I didn't appreciate before, which is that it's good. We live on the, outer rim or Douglas Adams I forget, what is it? he had a very poetic description for where we yeah. live us, you know the outer sp- limits right? yeah. <laughs> a small insignificant mm-hmm. planet on the outer edge of the galaxy um, because it's good for astronomers and astronomers are good for us yeah, that's right <laughs> absolutely uh, the book is called Losing the Nobel Prize by mm-hmm. Brian Keating and it is available everywhere is that right? Even at the center yes. of the galaxy, I'm sure it's selling very well there. That's right. It is a hot, hot commodity there. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> a hot commodity. <laughs> um, Brian, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for I'm, joining us, man. A real yeah, honor. it's been a pleasure, and I hope to see you in New York, uh, uh, maybe over the summer and the fall. Fantastic. And then, Matt, do you have anything coming up? Any exciting events? Uh, no, nothing imminent. All right. We do have the World Science Festival coming to New York. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. true. Yep. We'll Probably. look into that and make some recommendations next week. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for ifing with us. You are a chief ifer. And by the way, as a great thank you, a deep uh, sign of our gratitude, uh, we are going to send you a gift from our sponsor, the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. Wow. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but you... You probably are familiar with their toys. They do lots of funny... Yeah, you've seen them around. Smart, funny toys for smart, funny people, uh, including Freudian slippers. Oh, good. Um, and finger puppets of all the great scientists, men oh. and women and of all kinds. So um, you will be receiving a special Thank finger you, puppet to hang on I- your... And uh, it won't be Nobel, I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Oh, we got that. Sounds better. Noble of you. Yes. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank and you. I will uh, look forward to seeing you again sometime. Right on. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Bye, guys. Bye.